Hello, hello, and welcome to episode 18 of Words with Writers podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Canadian Authors Association Toronto Branch. We are a membership-based organization for writers in all levels, areas, and genres of the writing profession. We are your hosts, Brandy Tanner and Chris Gorman. This month, after we go over our writerly events and contests, we'll chat with two amazing authors, Bruce Madol and Robert W. Mackey, about character development, writing genre fiction, and dive into some of their personal passions that make them such great authors. That sounds great, Chris. Last month at our Canadian Authors Toronto event, we learned tips for marketing and heard about the ins and outs of some of the best marketing campaigns that marketing guru Chris Houston of the Idea Shop has seen. This was such an informative event and Chris was an amazing speaker. This month's event will be held November 25th and is actually a double event. Our co-presidents, J.F. Garrard and Lee Parpart will host our annual general meeting from 7 to 7.30 p.m. We'll review Toronto Branch's activities over the past year, present our financial report, and elect our 2022 executive committee. That's right. And then starting at 7.30, Brandy, myself, and J.F. Garrard will host our National Novel Writing Month write-in. Each year, on November 1st, hundreds of thousands of people around the world begin to write, determined to end the month with 50,000 words of a brand new novel. The NaNoWriMo site offers word counters, digital badges of encouragement, sponsor discounts, as well as community forums. Everyone in the Canadian Authors Association is invited to spend two hours dedicated to writing, even if you're not participating in NaNoWriMo. The purpose of this event is to either kickstart writing projects or continue them. It's an informal evening designed to help us feed off each other's creative energies, and you are free to come and go for breaks as needed. You can register for this event at canadianauthors.org slash Toronto slash events. We held a NaNoWriMo write-in event last year, and I thought it helped spark a lot of genuine connections, and it helped everyone who attended drastically increase our November word count which I think is especially important this month because I'm not sure Chris and I have done very much in NaNoWriMo yet. So that should help us out. Definitely have not. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Chris, the time has come to talk about some exciting contest opportunities that are coming up this month. First up, we have the Prairie Fire Contest for short fiction and creative nonfiction. Both of these contests feature publication in the Prairie Fire magazine, $1,250, a week-long residency in the Layton Artist Studios at Banff Center, as well as a replica of poet Bliss Carmen's Silver and Turquoise Ring. The deadline for both of these contests is November 30th. Awesome. Uh, and you know, I took a look at that ring just before the show today, and I have to say, I wish I wrote um, short fiction or creative nonfiction, because it's quite stunning, actually. Um, well, I do a little short fiction, and uh, Mama could use a new ring, so maybe I could work <laughs> There you go. Get on it. 
<laughs> so next up, we have the final deadline for the ScreenCraft Cinematic Short Story Competition on November 30th. Uh, this contest has a grand prize of $1,000, entry to the ScreenCraft Writer Development Program, a complimentary badge for the ScreenCraft Virtual Summit, lifetime subscription to Arc Studio Pro, and personal introductions and phone calls with one or more top Hollywood literary managers. So if you think your book has cinematic adaptation potential, you should definitely consider this one. Oh, that's a cool one. I really like, there's, there's a couple of contests around each year for cinematic adaptation potential. And I'm always interested in those ones because wouldn't it be so cool to see your story on the screen? But anyways, <laughs> we have a, another contest with a November 30th deadline, the Master's Review Novel Excerpt Contest. The first prize is $3,000 and an hour consultation with Hallie Perry, an agent with Driftless Literary. This contest is asking for excerpts that show off a sense of style with a clear grasp on craft, narrative, character, and plot. Submissions must be from unpublished novels and should be clear enough to stand on their own without a synopsis to explain them. It's a lot of contests so far, Brandy. Well, sure is, Chris, and there's many more with deadlines between November 25th and December 15th, so be sure to check out the Contests and Competitions section of CanadianAuthors.org for some more great opportunities to win cash and get published. So it is now time to get comfy, to get cozy, and to listen to our authors, Bruce Madol and Robert W. Mackey, talk about their craft. Our first guest today is award-winning author, poet, and songwriter, Bruce Medol. Bruce is a writer of poetry, lyric, and both short and long fiction, and won the John Kenneth Galbraith Literary Award in 2017 for a short crime story. He has completed four novels in the humorous crime or thriller genre and is currently working on his next. He is also an avid songwriter, writing in roots, folk, and country and is a great believer in the power of a song to change the world. Welcome to the show, Bruce. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Yes, welcome to the show, Bruce. We're so glad uh, that you could join us. And we're wondering to start out, if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and when you knew that you wanted to become an author. Uh, that I knew at a very early age. Um, I had been um, a bookworm from the outset. And uh, I think I had pretty much decided somewhere in the vicinity of grade three or grade four that I intended to write for a living. I thought for the longest time that I was going to be a poet, uh, although I did write, you know, the usual scores and scores of really abysmal short stories when I was just a, a, an infant. But I was always testing those storytelling chops from, from the beginning. And I knew uh, always going through school that this was the path that I wanted to take. 
I was fortunate in that direction. My mother was a school teacher, and there were, uh, and my my father is a, a, a scientist and mathematician. There were books uh, in great abundance in the house, and I was never uh, restricted in my opportunities to read or my choice of reading material. So I I, I read ahead of my age group all the way along, <laughs> and I had lots. Awesome. I had lots. You know, I could be. I could be. I was a reliable kid. I mean, I could be. You know taken to a shopping mall and parked on a sofa with a book and I'd be there. <laughs> <laughs> Books always make great babysitters in my experience too. So. <laughs> so I always knew this is what I wanted to do. Um, when I was in, uh, in university, um, at, uh, at, at one point I had the opportunity to do a writer's workshop for a whole year with Dennis Lee uh, as the writer in residence uh, when I was at Trent. And uh uh, that was a fabulous experience, um, you know, the opportunity to hang out with other poets for, you know, uh, a few hours every Thursday afternoon or whatever day it was. Now, I don't really remember. But, you know, an afternoon meeting with uh, fellow writers with a case of beer and the chance to just talk about literature with one of Canada's great poets. It was special. And then uh, all the people that uh, Dennis was instrumental in helping to bring to the uh, the faculty that year. We had readings and opportunities to converse with people like Michael Adache and, and W.O. Mitchell and uh, Don Coles and uh, um, Al Purdy, among others, um, and some of my heroes. And an aspiring poet at that point that was like uh, living in Clover. After university, I actually went to journalism school and had pretty much established that I needed to uh, make a living, and it was clear to me that my poetry wasn't going to provide the opportunity to survive. So I, I shifted into uh, writing professionally uh, as a journalist and then editor, which is where I've spent most of my working career. Awesome. So yeah, you've always been involved with books in some way, writing. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Uh, and I, I wanted to touch a little bit about your, your love of songwriting, because when I was going over your... Um, website that's it's very prominent that that's something that you love and that's important to you um and also because i happen to love folk music and you know, awesome that you write it um and i think you you have a songwriters uh, concert series i saw right yes my, my wife and i actually co-produced um a concert series called source of the song and that began uh i'll take you back a little bit into the backstory for that because when i discovered songwriting and decided that I needed to uh, I needed to pursue being a better songwriter then you know one of the things I recognized was that there was significant differences between being a poet of any description and being a lyricist the rules were different you had a different structure you had to conform to songs have that extra element which is musical structure that you have to work with and uh, it was clear from, you know, the material that I was listening to that uh, those great works of, of songwriting literature were uh, sort of different than what I was writing. So I sort of pretty much acknowledged at that point that songwriting was going to be a lifetime study and that I might as well get started with studying. So I joined some organizations. I joined, you know, the Songwriters Association of Canada. I joined Native Country Music Association and I joined uh, the Nashville Songwriters Association. And the NSAI, I joined as a coordinator or became a coordinator after attending the workshops for about a year or so when the person who was the, the coordinator 
uh, had to had to move away. And so a, a friend and I sort of took on co-chairing this Toronto workshop. And they brought us down to Nashville for training. And there I encountered something I had never seen before in Canada, which was uh, something called the Songwriters Round, um, where you had uh, three or four songwriters taking turns on stage, explaining why they wrote the famous songs that they were playing to you. And there were some radical differences in that. One of them was the fact that people would do that, that you know you could hear the writers and not just the artists that later recorded the songs. But then the recognition that when you heard a song performed by the writer, uh, it was different. It was a different kind of experience. It was qualitatively special uh, in ways that even the, you know, the, the wonderful star performances of, of, you know, recording stars was not. And uh, so when we uh, fast forward to the, you know, the point where uh, one day we were looking for an opportunity to do something in the small community in Glen Williams where my wife has her painting studio. And we happened upon the idea of, of starting a songwriter's concert where I would do something similar and focusing on the writers of songs as opposed to people who just happen to be performers. Not every performer you know, writes their own material and we wanted to focus on writers. So the, that very first uh, Source of the Song show, uh, we uh, I hosted it. Uh, I invited some fellow songwriters who got behind the concept immediately. And we had a lovely concert and it was very well received. And so we went on to do one or two of those a year for uh, several, you know, uh, close to a decade. I think we did like 34, 35 shows until some of my key volunteers uh, moved away and it began to be a, a little bit much to try and organize. But we always arranged it in the spring and in the fall so that it would fall on times where people were not typically away at the cottage or um, mm -hmm. and we all, you know, we always arranged it. We had great artists who came in, Juno Award winners, uh, Grammy uh, Award winners. We had, you know, people of, of, of names in, 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 you know, in, in folk music, you know, we had people like Susie Vinnick um, and, and uh Caitlin Hanford, Cindy Church, uh, Wendell Ferguson, uh, Maddie Haskell. We had all, you know, it was a very lovely list of great performers. And it's more than I can do to recount them all here. Uh, <laughs> you know, we took the show uh, and they weren't all folk mu musicians either. Like we had, uh, uh, we did one show up in, in Alliston uh, with uh, Grania Ryan and Dan Hill. Um, uh, and uh, and uh, we had... Uh, Dean McTaggart on several times, uh, who was a writer behind uh, so, some of those hits for Amanda Marshall, like Dark Horse and Last Exit Eden and Birmingham. Um, great writers all and uh, fabulous performers. And we loved that whole experience. It was instrumental for me in choosing my Twitter identity, uh, where I chose Songs Are Stories because that was that became one of my my key theories when I was trying to run songwriting workshops was you know that a song is essentially a short story uh, it is a short story with typically about 18 lines in it and it has yeah. a beginning a middle and an end and if you've done it right uh, you can change the world with it so that's always been a, a powerful part of my literary goals was to try and work in that very short form but eventually eventually and I had some success you know, I had some songs recorded and uh, continue to write and pitch 
uh, a little bit. But as time went by, I also, uh, I have a love of, of other lengths and I tried, you know, writing a bunch of short stories. And my first attempt at long fiction basically uh, arose from a collection of a series of short stories. And my very, my very first attempt at something that would, I would call a novel was initially a collection of about 33 connected short stories with the same disreputable, really deeply flawed character. And that became the, the very first attempt at a novel, which was uh, called Arcadi so far. That was the sort of evolution. I did write short stories. I love to try and write a short story, but I had also this goal. I've been a long time fan and reader of great uh, literary and, and humorous crime fiction. I've been a student of that genre because I was so addicted to it. Why not study it? It seems like a good opportunity to hear some of your work. So I understand you have a piece to read for us today. Could you go ahead and? I do, and I'll tell you what it's where it's from. Um, uh, this was the first chapter of my uh, fourth book. Um, it's called The Assassin's Guide to Watercolor. I love the title. <laughs> Me too. Thank you. And, and uh, it's, it's told from multiple perspectives. The, the first chapter is um, one of the, uh, the protagonists. Chapter one, Nile. The last hit went horribly, horribly wrong. It was supposed to be clean, sudden, and surgical in its precision. It was supposed to have been well-planned down to the last detail. Supposed to be. The location was a remote woodland retreat overlooking Shuswap Lake in the interior of British Columbia. Severe thunderstorms happening. The target was a little mousy-looking guy, a white-collar criminal, but he turned out to have two bodyguards, not the one I'd been told about and everything went pear-shaped in a hurry after that. The suppressor I'd been given was a piece of shit and failed completely as I wasted three extra shots killing the second bodyguard. The mousy-looking guy obviously heard the commotion because even with my piece of shit silencer, I was quieter than the screaming bodyguards. I don't know why he didn't just lock himself into his room and wait for the cops to come, not then anyway, but he chose instead to come out into the hallway armed with a knife, where I promptly strangled him. Well, first I beat him and took away his knife, and then I strangled him. Job done. But the whole thing offended me. The imprecision, my own sloppiness, like not sourcing my own weapons. In truth, I only got away by the skin of my teeth, and thanks to a forest fire that raised the entire crime scene and miles around it before the bodies were even found. I'd have liked to claim credit for that fire, useful as it proved, but it was caused by a lightning strike, and I don't believe the Almighty provides karmic support, a conflict of terms there, to contract killers, not even where the deceased was a slezoid child trafficker. Mysterious ways indeed, but I got lucky as a consequence, so maybe. In the end, though, I did not just slip away. I did not fade into the dark or any other fanciful phrase that might be used. None of that shite. I ran like a rabbit, like a shit-scared schoolboy, with the blood of a stranger on my hands and the stink of his breath in my nostrils. And I kept running because I did not like the man I had become. I dated a woman briefly who was a neonatal intensive care or critical care nurse. I forget the exact title 
But Chiron was in a job where the smallest and most vulnerable struggled every day for the spark of their own lives. To her, there was no need to explain how precarious life was, how delicate the balance. Some days she'd come home, her face gray with exhaustion, her eyes reddened, and I'd know, even without being told, they'd lost one. I could fold her in my arms, comfort her, make her a cup of tea, or even pour something stronger. None of that helped. She would spend the long, dark night with her eyes wide open, raking over her memories of everything they'd tried, everything that failed, wondering what she'd missed. This was long before I learned the worst about myself, the darkest of the dark talents I possessed. But I think back sometimes, would she have fought that hard for me if I'd been a child, one of her fragile little ones, if she could have known what I'd become? But that's not the point. A lot of people understand that life is short, but there were others. They live their lives as though there was always going to be nothing but time, and time was on their side. There would be no dread diseases, no scourge of war, no random accident, no single cloud to trouble their view ahead to a distant, long-distant horizon, with death like old age, far beyond that. For these people, the phrase, life is short, is always a mantra, a preface to any of the many indulgences that given utterance needed explaining to the part of their own minds that would listen to such things. Rest assured, the people who send me know that life is short. That's why they send me, to make sure. Wow, thank you very much for sharing that. That was amazing. Thank you. There's definitely a darkness to the story, but most certainly a humor to it as well. It was very entertaining. Thank you. I, I seem to lean especially towards characters that are both dark and twisted and, and, and ironic, uh, you know, with, with some kind of a, 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 a bitter edge to that humor. Um, maybe that's my Irish heritage or... <laughs> <laughs> Well, your website says you love strong characters with strong voices and definite flaws. Uh, and that's the kind of thing that makes a story believable, right? That's something that I think a lot of writers should aspire to. Um, how do you kind of balance uh, having a strong character with those definite flaws, but still being a likable part of the story? For me, uh, every story starts with uh, a voice, with a character. Um, and uh, I, I, for that reason, I've been leaning towards stories that are told, you know, from, from a first person narrative where, you know, we, uh, uh, we're inside the head of, of, the, uh, uh, of the person who is telling the story and getting their perspective, which means that they're always self-involved to a degree, uh, just by virtue of the fact that, that you're on the ride of their train of thought. Um, but, uh, but beyond that, I, I think that, um, you know, I, I possess lots and lots of flaws to choose from. Um, and uh, uh, so I, you know, I, you know, I find those characters can, you know, can be uh, equipped 
with you know uh, you know blind si- blind spots and and uh, and uh, the other thing about those characters though is is that almost inevitably they are somewhat uh, romantic um, that uh, that they're not um, they may be uh, cynical but they're not completely cynical <laughs> and uh, there are they're always uh, open to that uh, the possibility. Um, so that's that's another thing. Is I, I you know I, um, I don't I don't I don't want to write a character who is uh, as a main character who is uh, totally repulsive, uh, because uh, apart from the fact that it doesn't make very good reading, uh, like for most people that don't wish to identify with somebody who is a complete monster, once or twice I have I have done that. I've done that in a short story. Um, but uh, of course, by the end of that short story, I had to kill off the character just to uh, to give the reader some reward for having borne with his his um, nastiness. That's the other thing is I like I like stories that will have uh, some sense of of a weighing of the scale, some sense of of justice arriving. Uh, but I think if you know characters are not flawed, if they're not uh, imperfect in some or even many ways, then ordinary people won't embrace that. You know, there's nothing more boring than something that turns out to be just a straight fantasy. You know, even Superman had to have kryptonite. Yeah, absolutely. that's a good thing. Yes, that's absolutely true. <laughs> um, I, I love the way you said every story starts with a voice with a character. Uh, and I'm just wondering, so when you're coming up with ideas of what to write next, do you come up with the character first and then come up with ideas of, of what would fit that character? Or do you have the idea of the story and then develop a character from there? Uh, it always it always starts with the voice. I, I, have, a, I have a short story that I have been continually reworking, uh, which began, first of all, with, and this is an example for me. A good friend and co-writer of mine uh, was looking for a particular song to go on an album that they were in the process of working on. And they asked me to come up with a bluegrass song that featured a woman on death row. And so I began the song, putting this this person in that, in that situation. And there had to be some reason why they were on death row. And it had to be something that somebody could embrace, you know, uh, if you're listening to a song. Uh, But later, I I had the idea that it would be interesting, it would be fun to tell that story in a short story with a little bit more room to maneuver than the 18 or so lines that a song provides. So um, one day I began with uh, just a narrative. One paragraph was all it began with. This this person was thinking and looking back on their story. And then I had them set in the Deep South and I tried to figure out but i had the voice first i had uh like the like a voice in my head is that what does this person sound like and i didn't know what she would sound like until i began the process of writing down what it was she had to say and then the the sense of rhythms and personality began to emerge uh, you know i know that there are writers who are what they call you know uh plotters and then there's people who write from the seat of the pants and there's that usual dialogue i'm one of those people who always goes for uh sort of character driven storytelling so i i very seldom do anything like sketching out a much more than the the rudiments of any kind of an outline of where a story might go 
because I, I don't want to be, uh, you know, find myself later on in the storytelling process of, of, you know, creating the hand of God reaching down and suddenly wrenching something into a different path, just because that's how the plot outline went. You know, I spent a lot of time reading everything that Elmore Leonard and people of that nature wrote, and they're so strong with dialogue and, and character. That was also an influence to me. I just, I, I like I like it when characters do things that are not thoroughly reasonable uh, for for reasons that uh, seem perfectly reasonable to them. Right. Just like us real human beings. Yes. Yeah, just like <laughs> Because I do that, you know. Uh, Absolutely. And, and that, you know, that, that sometimes gives me some difficulties um, in terms of trying to manifest why something would have been would have been done by a character if, if I didn't even understand truthfully why they chose to do it. But you know, once once a character is established and they've taken up some kind of an identity in my head, you have to live with that person until you get finished telling their story. <laughs> Absolutely true. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> So also I wanted to, to ask, you write uh, humorous crime novels. You also write thrillers and mystery, uh, as well as songwriting. So just wondering how you switch between those different genres. Like, do you find they inform each other or do you try to keep them separate? Or I think they inform each other. Now, the, the, uh, um, the thriller slash crime novel, I think, I think in any event, I always... You know, I always throw in a little humor, like a form of of allspice, um, into into the uh, into the characters, um, because I think that's that's one of the ways of, of actually telling a darker story without causing the reader to throw the book aside. You know, I think sometimes unrelenting darkness gives people no chance to absorb what it is that the characters are seeing or saying. You know, if a character is going to be unrelentingly dark, I try to have them in the story in very short doses and some sense of humor. It's a part of the process. I think, you know, uh, people who deal with these kinds of darkness on a regular basis, like police officers, they have their own dark form of humor, which is what led me to my the, the work that I have in, in progress right now. There's a piece, the working title is Gallows Humor in a Season of Mercy. And and really, it's gallows humor is is sort of that attempt to cope with bleaker realities by by looking at it, you know, from outside. You know, the classic story of of, of a, a hanged man who you know climbs the steps up to his his doom and looks around him from the platform and looks down at the trap door and says to his hangman, "Is this thing safe?" <laughs> um, well, no, um, but. <laughs> But that's that's the nature of, of, of the, the humor that I, I try to weave into everything is that there's always a little bit of gallows humor or, or a pinch of cynicism or irony. Um, I think life is full of a rich, rich veins of irony. So, you know, why not include some of it in our perceptions of reality? Yeah. Absolutely. I, I think you've hit on some really good techniques there. And, and uh, you're right, putting some of that gallows humor, some of that, that funniness into a dark subject can make it more palatable for readers, right? So I think you've hit on something really great there. Yeah, I, I want people to worry about my character. I want, I want them to care about them. I want them to wonder what they're going to do next or what will happen to them next. 
Um, and I noticed that the people who I enjoy most reading always seem to find a way to lead you to turn a page and find out about these people that they've constructed for you, whether it's a short story or uh, a song or a poem or um, a longer work of fiction. The, the challenge is to try and sustain that kind of caring for a reader, to give them something to embrace and, and want to know more about and sort of see. Back in my university days, uh, I had what I, 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 one of those occasions that Dennis Lee had brought people to, to the university. Uh, I remember I had a chance to have lunch with W.O. Mitchell, which was special. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I remember him, he was expounding on a theory which he no doubt expanded to you know, uh, conveyed to thousands of people who had studied creative writing with him at University of Calgary when he was teaching there. But he talked about the, the importance of having all sorts of elements of reality in a story. He said, uh, if you provide all those true little details, they will pre- create a chime of recognition in the reader. And the reader will say, yes, that's true. I've seen that. I've done that. I've felt that. And if you provide all those true details, he said, at some level, he said, you put them together in one great big lie, which we call fiction. <laughs> but it will, it, will, it will have the ring of truth because it's based in truth. It's based in real life and how people are. And uh, if we can do that, I think that we're, uh, we're well on the road to telling a good story. Absolutely. I love that. Oh, wow. I, you have shared so much great information with us today and, and shared yourself. Uh, before we wrap up, can you tell our listeners where they can find you online? Do you have a website? Where can they buy your books? I have a website. It's at brucemadol.com. It's findable there. The novels you know, are all at this moment flying out in pitch packages to agents looking for, for a home to, to land in. So uh, the longest form of fiction is something I've really only, you know, taken on in the last five years. And so I'm still working on finding a, a literary home for some of those stories. But they can find the, uh, the website, they can find the songs out there in the world. And hopefully one of these days soon, we'll find a publisher for one or two of those longer pieces of fiction. And that, that, will, be, uh, that will be another glorious moment. <laughs> they sound they sound absolutely amazing. So I'm looking forward to being able to read them. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks so much for having me today. Thank you, Bruce. We can find you on Twitter too. Yes. Right? yes. Yep. And uh, Twitter handle is at Songs Our Stories. Wonderful. Perfect. Well, Bruce, you uh, thank you so much and have a wonderful day. Thank you so much. So our next guest today is Robert W. Mackey. Robert is an award-winning author, former naval officer, submariner, teacher, and lawyer. Born in Surrey, British Columbia, he's lived above and below the water in both the west and east coasts of Canada, the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans, and the North and Mediterranean Seas. Welcome to the show, Robert. Uh, Your bio makes me believe you have led an amazing life. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Brandy. It's uh, been never a dull moment, I assure you. It sounds that way. <laughs> uh, and I actually, I'm amazed and, uh, and, and curious about that whole life because I actually signed up 
with the Navy when I was young um, and or younger. I wasn't young, but I was younger than I am now. And uh, some very personal events happened and I, I wound up having to, to leave. But it was an honorable discharge and I always wanted to go back. Um, and I never did, but sometimes I, I think I should still, but maybe even just the reserves or something like that. I didn't so know. I, Learn something new every day. I didn't even know that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so I'm curious, uh, Robert, what drew you into writing? A life like that? Is it something that you've wanted to do your entire life? Or was it something that grew out of a need to talk about everything you'd experienced? I, well, I always uh, had it in the back of my mind that I might like to write one of these days, but I was quite busy and, and I always put it off. And uh, in uh, early in the 2000s, uh, I started thinking about my dad, who was a veteran of the First World War. Uh, he was uh, deceased by then, but uh, he had uh, had quite a war. He had uh, been involved in what was then called the last great cavalry charge uh, as a, a trooper on horseback. And uh, I decided uh, I wanted to tell his story. Awesome. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, sounds like a story that needs to be shared. Absolutely. Uh, so could you go ahead and share a short piece of your writing with our listeners today? Yeah, sure. Uh, happy to. Uh, this is uh, from my, uh, from Tom's story, uh, Tom Mackey, my dad. Uh, it's called Soldier of the Horse. Uh, the uh, the regiment that he was in as a trooper was uh, Lord Strathcona's horse. Uh, they were out of Winnipeg. And... Uh, uh, my dad, in, on uh, March 30th, 1918, uh, was wounded uh, in the left arm uh, due to a, a, a strange circumstance. But in any event, on that particular date, the battle had commenced at a place called Moray Wood. And uh, Tom was uh, getting medical attention to his wound. So he's on a hillside with his horse, uh, Toby. Uh, tethered nearby, and uh, Tom has sought help from a medical orderly named Blanchard. In the meantime, his squadron of uh, horses, uh, uh, led by a fellow named uh, Gordon Flowerdew, uh, who later earned a Victoria Cross, uh, was uh, in the distance getting ready for battle. So Tom's on the hillside talking to Blanchard, who says, Aren't you the lucky one? What? Asked Tom. I said, aren't you the lucky one? Blanchard repeated. You, you'll have to sit tight here, though, until things settle down. Walking wounded. There'll be lots more coming in by the sound of that. And he gestured toward the wood where the battle was growing louder by the minute. Then we'll get you away, maybe even to hospital. Maybe even to hospital. So he had a blighty courtesy of Inkman, for God's sake. Something many a man, maybe most of them, dreamed of when the shells were flying and German bullets were zipping past. He'd be out of here in no time. Maybe the war would end before his arm recovered, a happy thought, but probably a forlorn hope. It looked as though the war would go on forever. Blanchard interrupted again. Here you go, Sergeant. First today, I expect, courtesy of the Colonel. He held out a tin cup half full of rum. Tom tried to reach with his left hand, winced and grabbed the offering with his right. He drank. 
The wooziness passed as he gazed around. Toby was standing patiently a few yards away, still tethered to an unused stretcher. The world was full of possibilities. He would go home, might never see action again. He'd write to Ellen with the good news. He had a wound, not a major wound, but a real one. She'd come around, see things his way. If there was someone else, well, leave that for another day. Tom realized he was smiling, sitting on a wooden box on the outskirts of a battle and smiling. He glanced down at the tin cup in his hand, nearly empty. He tossed it back. Maybe he could get some from, more from Blanchard. Looking around, he saw a sea squadron, his squadron, showing a flurry of activity. The men were tightening girths, checking equipment, mounting up. As he watched, the confused mass of men and animals took shape, formed up in double ranks, and walked toward him. The squadron was led by Gordon Flowerdew, former farmer, sergeant, and now lieutenant. Tom stood up, his bare left arm cold in the biting March wind. Two by two, the mounted squadron passed by, Tom watching as his comrades followed Flowerdew, faces set. Beside Flowerdew was Longley, the boyish bugler who had lied about his age to get into the army. He saw Tom and waved. Johansson went by, touching two fingers to the rim of his helmet when he saw Tom. He looked drawn like all of them, haggard with lines etched in their young faces, exhausted. A lot of them were just boys going in over their heads, beaten up, ranks depleted. A lot of the senior non-coms were dead or wounded or away at officer's school or standing and watching. Blanchard, Tom's tunic was on the ground where it had been tossed. Help me. He struggled to hold the tunic with his right hand and get it up over his left arm. What do you think you're doing, Sergeant? Blanchard hurried over from where he had been unpacking medical supplies. Get this goddamn tunic on me. Blanchard pulled the tunic from Tom's hand. He eased it up over his wounded arm, then held it so Tom could get his right arm in and do up the seven buttons one-handed. Tom hurried to Toby, freed him, and clutched the reins in the pommel of his saddle with his right hand. Another bout of dizziness engulfed him. He didn't know if he could mount or not. Blanchard came over and bent close to him, hands clasped in front. Tom nodded, put his left boot in the proffered hands and pulled in the saddle as Blanchard boosted him. He settled into his seat right behind the saddle wallet, still crammed tight with tins of bully beef. He took the reins in his right hand, left arm slightly bent, the weight of his left hand on his pommel. He touched his spurs to Toby, who broke into a trot, then a canter, and they followed in the tracks of Flowerdew's squadron. I like it. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Oh, great. Thank you. Uh, and I want, I want to read more. <laughs> <laughs> oh, happy to send you a copy. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> no, that was great. Um, we are going to be inviting you back in a few months for a special uh, historical fiction episode. Um, today, we were hoping maybe you could tell us a little bit uh, about what it's like to write historical fiction. Um, like how much research do you have to do for each novel and how do you write an engaging story about historical events that connects with the reader of today? It's big questions, but. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I don't find that these things come together easily. And uh, mm -hmm. when it comes to research, I sometimes feel I've been doing it all my life. Um, 
with uh, Soldier of the Horse, uh, of course, I, I was familiar with uh, my dad's story to a certain extent. He, he didn't uh, talk an awful lot, but he talked more than many veterans did. Uh, so I knew the outlines of his story. And uh, so the research was easy to get started on and to follow through with because the uh, as it happens, uh, Lord Strathcona's horse, of which he was uh, a member, is still going today. They're in Edmonton, uh, and uh, they're in tanks, not on horseback. No. So they ha they have a historical section, and there's there are a lot of there's a lot of books about the Canadian cavalry once you get into it. Uh, as far as the uh, my submarine story, Terror on the Alert. Once again, uh, I was living some of the uh, historical research because it was more than 50 years ago. And I was living and working there and the story came together relatively easily for me. I'm working on a third one uh, about the Korean War. There is uh, quite a bit of history about the Korean War that you can dig up relatively easily. There are still some veterans around, and I've managed to uh, get a relationship with two or three of them. Interestingly, though, there are almost no Canadian novels about the Korean War. Mm. There are any number of novels about the Second War. I heard Tim Cook on a podcast not that long ago, and he was uh, writing about how a few years ago, he noticed that uh, there was very little by way of writing and novels and so on about Canada's Second World War. But that has since been remedied. There's quite a bit now. There's a lot of history written, but very little about the Korean War. And that's what Terror on the Alert is about? No, uh, the Korean War is the one I'm working on right now. Oh, right, right. Sorry, sorry. The, the working title is The Forgotten. Uh, it's, it's known as The Forgotten War. Uh, very often, uh, 1950 to 53. And uh, once again, Canada uh, went over and uh, there were some very interesting things happened. And uh, so for, for Terror on the Alert, you actually won the silver medal uh, for military wartime fiction um, for that one. So is it, uh, you actually served on a submarine? Uh, yes, I, I served in uh, a couple of submarines. Uh, I was trained uh, in Britain with the uh, Royal Navy. And then I served uh, a year on board a British submarine. Mm -hmm. And at that point, Canada was having built in the UK three Oberon-class submarines, the third of which was HMCS Okanagan. And uh, I was uh, on the, uh, the initial crew of the Okanagan. So I served in her uh, for uh, a year or two uh, in, in British waters as we worked her up and, and got her up to speed and then brought her back to Canada. Wow. I always thought it would be neat to be on a sub, but then at six foot six, seven, I think it would probably be really bad for my back. <laughs> 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 it, that's probably a little extreme. I, I, I was six feet and I, I had a lot of uh, gouges in the top of my head. <laughs> Fair enough. I fit just perfectly. I'm five foot one, but uh, there you <laughs> go. For some <laughs> yeah, you, you might have had to stand on tiptoe for the periscope, though. <laughs> right? Need a little step stool? 
Yeah. <laughs> awesome. So Bob, I wanted to, to ask if you could tell us a little bit more about your characters and how you as a writer um, develop them realistically while also uh, so like imagine writing historical fiction, a lot of times you're dealing with, with people who were actually real or based on somebody who did something. So how, how do you kind of include that, like honor that? Well, the, uh, uh, I do write novels. Right. Uh, and so of course there's the usual disclaimer in the front of the book uh, saying uh, this, this is all, in the author's head, right? <laughs> uh, these people aren't real. This isn't the real so-and-so. So for instance, uh, for the, the actual uh, characters who were real, uh, such as, uh, let's say, Gordon Flowerdew, the uh, squadron leader uh, in my dad's uh, squadron, he was a, a transplanted Englishman, as so many of them were in the First War. Uh, he was a, uh, a farmer or a, a rancher or, or also uh, a part-time uh, butcher in a small town in, uh, in the interior of BC. And he was, uh, as a real character, he had uh, roots here in BC, but also he uh, still has uh, family members in the UK who I happen to have met since. And so I have to, as you say, uh, Chris, uh, honor him and make him as, as realistic as I can while making him uh, a, a character in the story. So he, as an example, is not a major character, uh, but uh, he is a real one. Uh, I'll tell you something interesting that happened when I was writing uh, Soldier of the Horse. <clears throat> My editor, who first read the manuscript, said, you've sort of gone halfway uh, with uh, the relationship between Tom and Ellen. She said, you either have to totally sort of gloss over the whole physical thing, or you have to get into it more. He, she said, readers today expect that. So I tried to get going and, and write a sort of a semi-sex scene uh, <laughs> between my dad and his first wife, who I never met. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was having real problems with that. In fact, I felt my dad was standing over my shoulder, shaking his head and saying, no, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> so uh, to take him out of the picture, I changed his name. My protagonist in his story is Tom McRae, which was his mother's maiden's name. And he let me go then. <laughs> He let me write, write it however I wanted. I can imagine that would be a very awkward scene to try it, to. It, it was getting worse and worse. Anyway, it, it's almost totally glossed over anyway. I kind of won out over the editor with that one. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> awesome. Do you have a website or any social media? Can you tell our listeners where they can buy your book? Uh, sure. The, uh, the book is, I guess, most convenient for, for everybody as it's on Amazon, mm -hmm. uh, Soldier of the Horse by Robert W. Mackey. My website is uh, www.robertwmackey.ca. 
and the Mackie is uh, M-A-C-K-A-Y. Uh, I'm on uh, Facebook and uh, uh, Twitter and having a shot at Instagram, having fun <laughs> with all those things. I have Great. to say your, your pictures on Instagram are beautiful. So that's, oh, thank you. You're a real treat to follow there. Yeah, I, uh, I was just going to say, you know, West Coast scenes are relatively easy to do. And <laughs> one of these days, I'll have to start uh, putting some things on there uh, about Korea. Mm -hmm. And hopefully we'll be hearing soon uh, that The Forgotten is coming out and you will be able to share more of that one with us. Yeah, me too. The manuscript is uh, is done from my point of view, so I'm... As uh, soon as I get this uh, flurry of local activity out of my way, uh, I'll be uh, looking for a publisher. Wonderful. Yeah, I think uh, I, I think I'm going to order Terror on the Alert actually right now. Just reading about it here. So. Oh, good show. I'd I'd like to hear about your uh, Navy time, Chris, one of these days. Yeah, we'll get together and chat. Love yeah, you. I would also like to hear more about. <laughs> <that>. <laughs> Well, Bob, is there um, any last uh, words of advice um, or inspiration for our listeners out there? Stay with it. Don't give up. My, my stories have taken years to come together and, and uh, have at times been abandoned and then recovered. So Brandy and Chris, thank you both very much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Bob. Can't wait to have you back. Wow, Chris, our guest authors, as always, were just tremendous today. I love hearing about Robert Mackey's service uh, and thank him so much for his service. And also Bruce's reading was just humorous. And, you know, I like a little bit of darkness with some funny. That's definitely my thing when it comes to reading fiction. I love to see the combination. And it was just terrific having them both on the show today. Yeah, it really was. And they're, uh, they're, they're so much of themselves goes into their writing, right? You can see uh, Robert's personal experience and then Bruce in his, in his characters. There's bits and pieces of himself all through there, right? Absolutely. And just love learning more about each of our members and hearing those readings. That's got to be my favorite part when our guests read from the work that they've created. Just fantastic guests as always and hope to have them both back on the show sometime in the future. Well, all right, our lovely listeners, before we head out, we do have a bit of member news that actually involves our very own Christopher Gorman. So I hear that you have a short story coming out. I do, yes. So uh, I wrote a short story for an anthology called Dreaming the Goddess, and uh, it's called Finding Balance. But uh, anyway, the anthology just got released uh, two weeks ago. So it's available through Amazon and it's called Dreaming the Goddess. Oh, perfect. I'm so proud of you. Yay, congratulations. <laughs> Thanks, Brandy. <laughs>
And we will post that uh, on our website along with all our member news. And so you'll get links if you want to purchase that anthology. And now it's already time to close our show for November. So I'm sorry to say, I think we are going to take a bit of a break in December. Chris and I just need to catch up to ourselves and come back strong with a great episode in January. That's not to say we won't be doing anything at all. We will release some of our director's cuts, which are just some longer interviews from past guest appearances. And I believe we will also be giving away some books. So keep an eye out on our social media and our website for a chance to win some fabulous novels. So much for being with us today. And we will talk to you again soon. Thanks for listening. Bye. Thanks for listening. Bye.